Would you please pray with me? Lord, we give thanks for this time together this morning. And we do give thanks for your word. Lord, we give thanks for how it feeds us, for how, how it encourages us, how it builds us up. And I ask, Lord God, that you would go ahead of this time as we look into your word, Lord Jesus, that it would truly um, break into our hearts, Lord, break into our minds, we pray. So we give this time up to you now, Lord, and we ask for your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. If, um, if you're anything like me, you may spend a little time on Facebook. If you're anything like me, you may spend too much time on Facebook. Um, but you know when you're going through Facebook and you've got your news feed and you're looking at what everybody had for dinner the night before and all that kind of stuff, you'll notice that oftentimes there's all these little articles that are, that are there that people have commented on and so you, you can click on those and read those if you want. I confess about 99% of those I just kind of pass by. I don't have time. But there was one last week that caught my eye, and it was a bit of a sobering article. Now, I was in the middle of my paper, so I was feeling a little sober at the time as well. Um, But the article's name was, The Top Five Regrets Expressed by Those in Palliative Care. The Top Five Most Common Regrets Expressed by People Who Are Near the End of Their Lives. And given about how much time I was spending on this paper, you can understand why I was thinking that, yeah, I can think on my deathbed there'll be some regrets. Um, There were five of them. I wish that I had let myself be happier was one of them. I wish that I had stayed in touch with my friends was the second. I wish that I had expressed my feelings more, been more honest with people was the third. The fourth one surprised me. I thought this would be number one. It was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Spent so much time working. But the number one was, I wish that I had led the life that I had wanted, not the one that was expected of me to live. I thought that was interesting. Now, we could do a sermon series just on those five alone. We could look at each one uh, individually and, and look at that in terms of our relationship with God and, and what it means to live this life. But as I looked at these, I thought to myself, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a, a bigger question that's being asked here. And I think it has to do about what is our legacy that we are leaving? What, what of our lives will be remembered? What have they stood for? And I think that's a, that's a question that kind of creeps up more and more the older we get. I think that we, we, you know, we worry so much about the future so often, but as we get older, there's this point where you start to look back more and you start to think, maybe I'm more worried about what's past. It's a valid question, and, and it's one that we see also in the Bible. It's not just one that we ask. We've seen it many times as we've gone through the, uh, the lower stories, if you will, in the Word of God. And we see others that have been hit with this concern as well. So I think right away of like Abraham, for example. He was told he would have a multitude of descendants, yet he did not have a single heir for so much of his life. What kind of a legacy was he going to leave? I'm sure he wondered. Or I think, of, uh, I think of Isaac. What kind of a legacy was he leaving, I wonder, if he's sitting in his tent while he's blind thinking, my kids, Jacob and Esau, are ask- just acting like such idiots. What is the legacy of Isaac that's going to be remembered through these guys? I don't know. Or even David, when he was talking to Solomon, what did he say to him on his deathbed? Solomon, 
are about to go the way of the earth. So be strong, act like a man, and keep the commandments of God. Or even as a nation, the nation of Israel. What was the nation of Israel called to be? The nation of Israel was called to be this holy nation, right? And often the legacy that Israel left was very contrary to that, wasn't it? Yet, despite all these lower stories and their concerns, we see God working in the upper story. He's working through all of these to create the ultimate legacy through his son, Jesus Christ, by bringing forth his purposes to redeem mankind and usher in the kingdom of heaven. And last week, we took a look at this. We looked at the church and how the Holy Spirit was filling up all of these men and women to go out and be the church and just the kingdom of heaven breaking into the world. And we see this through all these awesome stories that we looked at, like a hard story, the, the, the martyring of Stephen. And yet through that persecution, how the church spread and grew. Or stories like the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians having to come together and figure out, hey guys, what does this unity thing look like? How do we accomplish this? Because you love Jesus and I love Jesus. We've got some things to figure out, but how do we do this? And they do it. They're figuring it out. It's fascinating stuff. And then, of course, there's the story of Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Great enemy of the church, wasn't he? And yet Saul experiences this divine interruption in his life where he meets the risen Jesus and it transforms him completely, doesn't it? Can you imagine thinking that so much of what you've done was for the good, for the Lord, only to find out that you were acting as an enemy agent against him? That kind of thing would take a while to get over, wouldn't it? I think it took Saul a while. And you can understand why his name eventually changed to Paul, didn't it? Literally means humble. Jesus breaks in his, into his life and Paul experiences a transformation that is seen through a number of letters in the Bible written by him and about him, some of, some of which we read in this last week in the chapter of the story that took us through parts of Acts, Ephesians, and 2 Timothy. And it's in 2 Timothy that we're going to spend some time on this morning as we get a little further into the sermon here. So if you want to keep your finger ready on 2 Timothy, we're going to be in the first chapter there, looking at what Carolyn just, just read. In 2 Timothy, we read what was likely Paul's final letter before his death. Once again, Paul is under arrest. But it's not like before, where he was under house arrest. Now he is a, a state prisoner of the Roman Empire most likely under charges of insurrection. Hence, he is chained now like a common criminal. Indeed, by the tone of the letter, death appears fairly imminent. But what's noteworthy about the letter, despite Paul's sober and, and lonely tone, is that there are no hints of regrets being spoken of, but rather an overwhelming testimony to the power of God experienced in a life redeemed by Jesus Christ. In his letter, Paul is speaking to Timothy, this man who was a friend and ministry partner with Paul, to inspire him to keep the faith and encourage him in his ministry. And at the same time, Paul is also kind of passing on the baton to him, isn't he? He is entrusting his legacy to Timothy. And his legacy is a life lived for God. 
not a legacy of money or political power or vast property. It's a legacy of a life simply lived for God. And within this legacy, an encouragement to Timothy to do the same. He writes to him, What you heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This legacy that Paul was leaving, this holy life lived for Christ, was made up through a number of different things, but some of the big headlining pieces that made it up were God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Both of these played a huge part in Paul's writings and consequently his life for Christ. God's grace. Paul could not stop talking about God's grace. Paul was all about God's grace. Look at how many of his letters began. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That changes you. That's not kind of the sentimental you complete me kind of thing with Jesus. This is like Jesus grabbing hold of you and turning you inside out and turning you upside down and completely changing your life. That's what Paul experienced. God's grace transformed Paul to lead a holy life. Paul wrote to Timothy, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Not because of anything we have done. We've heard this time again, you know, there's nothing we can do to deserve God's grace. But there's the flip side of that too. There's nothing that we can do that would leave us unable to experience God's grace. Paul knows this firsthand. He knows of his horrendous past. He constantly talked about this in his letters. In 1 Timothy, he writes, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. In Ephesians, he writes, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. Notice that all these verses are framed in God's grace. Enacting Paul to live a holy life a holy life. Note that it's not a cushy life or a life free of any kind of hardship. If anyone preaches to you that a life in Jesus Christ is going to lead to a life without hardship, I would question what Bible they're preaching from. Paul endured some suffering in his lifetime. There's this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians where you get the idea that someone kind of said to him, Paul, I'm not sure you really have experienced much suffering in your lifetime. And Paul kind of goes on a little bit of a rant almost um, in 2 Corinthians. He writes, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. 
I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and I walked 12 miles through 10 feet of snow just to get to school and twice back again. You get the point. Paul has endured some suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. A holy life does not mean a life without hardship. A holy life will not be a cushy life, but it will be a life that knows the wonderful, wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. By grace, we see God's purposes take place in Paul's life despite the odds against it. Even under house arrest, Paul is still writing these letters to the church. And through these letters, disputes are being settled. False teachers are being dismissed. The church is being encouraged. The church is growing. This is all part of the legacy of a holy life. God's grace is a very abundant part of that. Paul's legacy of a holy life was made possible through God's grace. It was also made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like grace, Paul couldn't stop talking about it. He couldn't stop writing about it. He was all about the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, he writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. From the law of sin and death. The spirit who gives life. Paul understood that a life lived for Jesus was empowered to do so through the Holy Spirit. You want to live right? You walk in step with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Galatians, Paul describes this by saying, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit is going to lead you out of that. The Spirit is going to lead you away from that and towards the life in God. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul goes on to talk about the acts of the flesh, and these are important to look at. Paul enjoyed writing down numerous sin lists, and I think these are important to to pay attention to. Listen to what he says here. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, pay close attention for a moment, because sometimes some of these bigger sins, quote-unquote bigger sins, get our attention. Things like witchcraft and orgies. I'm sure there's not too many here this morning that are partaking in that. If you are, you need to stop. Okay? If you're not a Christian and you're partaking in that, you still need to stop. That's just bad news. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin the people around you. But don't let those quote-unquote big ones eclipse the smaller ones, the not-so-bad sins, right? Because often 
we lose sight of those in light of the big ones. So watch out for discord. Watch out for jealousy and envy. Watch out for selfish ambition. These are just as much things, if we live for these things, if we don't get our lives free of these things, these things will get in the way of our relationship with Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul goes on to write, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live holy lives for Jesus. Paul says in this reading that those who live by the flesh won't enter the kingdom of God. In Romans, he's a little more pointedly blunt. I think that was the word we used in Sunday school, wasn't it, Fred? He's being more pointedly blunt. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's pretty blunt. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. But Paul doesn't just stop there. For he understands that life by the Spirit simply doesn't just mean freedom from death. There's something more to all this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves. Hold on to that word for a second, slaves. Remember that word for a moment. It does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. The slave language there is important. Back in Paul's day, you you could be a slave for a household, but the master of that household could adopt you into his family. And so even though you were a slave, if you were adopted into this family, you now have just as much right to the master's possessions as his own flesh and blood do. That's pretty big. That's quite a turn of events there. And that's what Paul is saying here. And we, though once enslaved to sin, through the Spirit, received through the Lord Jesus Christ and are adopted into God's household. And by him, Paul writes, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. There's legacy language there, isn't it? There's an inheritance there. For us, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. There's that suffering language again. We are adopted into a family, into community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But like any of us know in a family, whether your family is doing great, whether your family is having a hard time, there's always the nitty-gritty that you have to go through, isn't there, as a family? It's always there. It's no different in the kingdom of God. There's always the hard things you need to go through together as a family. So there's that suffering language again. It almost sounds like a bait and switch, doesn't it? Co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. It's more like, if you follow a life in Christ... There will be suffering. But I'm not even sure the Bible talks about it that way. I think the Bible gives it more of a, we get to. (laughs) This is a privilege. 
to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is very clear that any suffering we experience here in this world is no comparison to the glory that is to come. And this inheritance that we receive as heirs and co-heirs of Christ, understand it's not just to get into heaven. That's not what the inheritance is for. It's not just to get into heaven. It's to get into heaven even while here on earth. Amen? All of this that Paul experiences in his life, all of this is a legacy that points not to Paul's greatness, it doesn't point to the church's greatness, but to the greatness of God's power at work in the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul knew this power in his life, and it emboldened him to live this holy life for God. Listen again to the words he shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice how it encapsulates all that we've been talking about this morning, about God's grace, the Holy Spirit, leading a holy life, though not without suffering. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. I love that line. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we believe. Maybe the focus should be more on whom we believe. I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Another word for entrusted is deposited. What Paul has deposited to God until that day. Paul knows that he will need to give an account of his life to God. But until that day, he entrusts the life that he has lived for God to him. To do whatever he wants to with it. But he also encourages Timothy to do the same. A passing on of the legacy, if you will. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, Timothy. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so here we are today, church. We're all in different places in our lives. For some, our lives are just beginning. For some of us, they're a tad further on. And everywhere else in between. And it may be worth looking at some of these regrets that we heard about earlier in the sermon that people have experienced in their lives and the legacy that they hope to leave. But rather than looking at a legacy from that point of view alone, look at it from the point of view of a people who are called to leave a legacy not so much through our story, through what we've done, but through God's story, through what he has done in us. Here are some final thoughts on that. Are we leaving a legacy of a life lived through God's grace? Take God's grace. Receive it into your life. 
But not just the I've been saved grace that we know so well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That is important. Hallelujah for it. Absolutely. But grace is not simply there for the forgiveness of sins. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. Do you remember when we did that renovation of the heart series during Sunday school about a year and a half ago? Dallas Willard had this quote. The saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. God's saving grace is just the beginning. But it is also the grace that we live off of every second of every day. So where else in our lives do we need to apply that grace? If our lives feel like they're in a little bit of a holding pattern, nothing's really happening, and all God's grace has kind of turned into is, well, at least one day I'll get into heaven. I got that going for me anyway. I don't know if that's living a holy life. I don't know if that's living a holy life. And I don't mean that to sound like a chastisement. I don't mean that to sound insensitive to anything that anyone has endured in their life or is enduring. I do mean it as a great encouragement. Remember Paul's words to Timothy. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. His grace comes with a purpose for our lives, and he will lead us in it. And whatever this looks like, when lived for him, it will leave a legacy that witnesses to God's glory. And that can last for eternity. Invite the Lord to show you where in your life His grace needs to be applied today. Are we leaving a legacy of a life lived by walking in step with the Holy Spirit? Friends, don't be afraid to get to know the Holy Spirit. He won't bite. The Holy Spirit often... I wonder if often we worry more about who we're sure He's not, that we don't really get to know who He really is. In fact, the more I try to get to know who the Spirit is, I wonder if I might just go insane. I don't want to miss the chance that would be in relationship with him. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I'm kind of more just talking off the top of my head now. But I know that we are invited to be in community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are in communion with each other. And the Holy Spirit is integral to living a holy life for Christ. Pray daily. Pray daily to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray for each other to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago in our life group, we did just that. We ended our night by praying for each other. We just took turns. We just grabbed somebody at random and prayed for them and asked for the Holy Spirit to fill them up. And nothing weird or crazy happened. It was just a lovely evening of just feeling blessed, feeling spiritually encouraged, spiritually formed. It was life-giving. And that's not a surprise, because it's the Spirit who gives life. The Holy Spirit will lead us out of our desires to live a sinful life and lead us into a life that is in sync with the purposes of God. Again, He empowers us to live a life that will leave a legacy that witnesses to God's glory. And that can last for eternity. Legacy is kind of a grandiose word. Maybe it sounds too big, really. Um, often with legacy, we think about, you know, someone who built a great building or someone who broke a world record in whatever sport. 
uh, someone who sold millions of albums back when albums sold by the millions. That might be what we think of with legacy. But they're also often by the world's standards. What do we want to show for our lives? Are we making ourselves available to be used by God, to share with others what God has put into us, taking that and depositing it into others, entrusting it to them? Now that's something that can last. By example, I think of Paul, who gives thanks, who gives thanks to God for Lois and Eunice, these two women in Timothy's life, his grandmother and his mother, who simply kept the faith, proclaimed the word, and passed that on to their son and their grandson. And you see what it did in his life. It's the legacy of ones who keep the faith and proclaim the word. Dean, do you want to come back up with your team? We're at the end of our year-long series in the story. Next week is the final chapter. But it's not the end of the story, is it? The story we are living day by day. And one day, our time to live it out here on this earth will be done. What do we want to show for it? What do we want our lives to really have stood for? Like Paul, on that day, we will need to give an account of how we really lived our lives. And every person here has a life that God can use and is using and can continue to use that will leave a legacy through his story, a legacy that kept the faith and proclaimed the word for his purposes by his grace. Friends, what a legacy that can be. And that's very much what we here at Shelburne Street want to be about. I love the fact that so many people I talk to about Shelburne Street Church of Christ have no idea where it is, or, well, it's on Shelburne Street, they know that much, but... I have to describe the building to them. And once they finally figure it out, they're like, oh, that place. I've driven by that place like 100 times a day. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. You're welcome to come in sometime. But I love that I have to explain it because what we do here is not for our glory, is it? It's not for our name to be put in lights. It's for God's name to be glorified. It's for his purposes to be made, to be made for everyone to see. We keep the faith, we proclaim the word through all the myriad of ways that that takes place through this community of believers, whatever that can look like. That we might leave a legacy that witnesses to his glory because it has been left through God's story and that can last for eternity. So in the words of Paul, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, Shelburne Street. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen. Amen. Let's praise the Lord.